Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And by the time we get through with the first three verses, we're not going to cover the whole chapter today. It's really, um, I wanted to um, take a little more time in this chapter, and we may do this in the, pre- in the following chapters. And by the time we get through with these uh, first three verses today, then you'll maybe better understand why some of you here got coloring packets, but some of you did not get a coloring packet today, right? Okay. Prolonged adolescence is the refusal of man to grow up. God desires for his children to grow up to maturity in all things in him. It is our fallen nature, and it is our minds that are not renewed to the truth that cause us to stay in a place of immaturity. We do not perceive it as such, but God knows when the things that are meant for our good and our growth become hindrances to our, grow, to our growing on to maturity. What was given as a means for life can become a means for destruction and even death if we are not ever looking to Christ. For instance, the milk that nourishes us as babes can lead to malnourishment if we do not grow out of our need and our desire for it. So it is with spiritual things. We have to grow up. And as we see in this chapter of Hebrews, and as we saw in the previous chapter, where the writer of Hebrews says that milk is for those who are babes, but solid food is for those who have come to full age. So I'm not going to read the entire chapter today, I'm just going to read the first three verses, because that's where we're going to focus Today, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. And we thank you that it is the power of God to salvation. Lord, your word through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit changes us, it transforms us, and it conforms us to the very image of the Son of God. We ask that you would do that. That, Lord, you would grow us up and bring us to maturity in all things in Christ. Lord, we would love those things that make for our growth, that we would love and we would embrace those things that contribute to our growing up. And Father, even when we do not love them, even when they are unpleasant to us, Father, give us eyes to see and hearts to walk in your way, that your will would be done in us. For your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, 
we're going to concentrate on just the first three verses today because if we don't get these first three verses and really understand what the writer is talking about, it's going to be very easy for us to misunderstand uh, some things as we go further in this chapter and through this book. So here we start this chapter. Now remember, when this is a letter that was written, so when the letter was written in its original form, there weren't chapter numbers and verse numbers. And so when we get to our chapter 6, verse 1, we see the word, therefore, which tells us that the thought he's giving us here is linked to what was written previous. So let's back up just for a moment, and let's read just, the last three verses of chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God that you have come to need, and that you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So remember who this letter is written to. This letter is written to the Hebrews. These were Hebrew believers who were living in Italy. And remember what they wanted to do. We're going to see this more clearly as we go through this letter. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem. They wanted to sacrifice in the temple. And they wanted to basically do what they'd been taught to do all of their lives as good Jews in keeping the law and worshiping God through the ceremonies of the law. But the writer here is warning them not to do this, and he's warning them not to do this for a good reason. So these believers that are addressed in this letter were prone to stick in this place that the writer calls the elementary principles of Christ. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, or the beginning things of Christ, so they, they want to remain here, they're kind of stuck here. The law and its ceremonies was such a part of their identity as a people that it was very easy to get stuck in those elementary principles of the doctrines of Christ and not move on to maturity. The desire to keep the law and to offer gifts and sacrifices as prescribed under the old covenant of the former dispensation were so tempting that these believers found themselves being drawn back to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices for sin. They were desiring to offer the blood of animals in a temple made with hands through an earthly and mortal high priest to the God and Father of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that was slain once and for all 
to take away the sins of his people. So if you can picture this, they want to go back to Jerusalem and they want to offer the blood of an animal on behalf of their sins to the God who set that system up to point them to and show them the ultimate fulfillment of what all of that represented, which is Christ. So think of going to offer the blood of animals to God who sent His only Son to shed His blood on behalf of sin. And understand that no amount of blood and no number of animals offered could wash away, take away, atone for the sins of God's people. Only the blood of Jesus, or as the song goes, nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. And so this is the tension here. This is the conflict. In professing to be followers of Christ, in professing to be believers, they were professing that Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' blood is sufficient. But yet in wanting to go back to Jerusalem to offer animals and sacrifice at the temple, they were saying in reality that the blood of Jesus is not sufficient. So they were saying one thing with their mouth, but their actions, what they wanted to actually do, was contrary to what they were confessing. And the apostle writing this, the writer of this letter is telling them, he's pointing out this contradiction, he's pointing out their sinfulness and their desire to want to go back and offer animals and sacrifice for their sin. John Gill says in his commentary on the book of Hebrews of the gospel, the gospel is the doctrine of Christ and is so called because Christ as God is the author of it. As mediator, he received it from his father. As man, he was the preacher of it. And he is also the sum and substance of it. Or we could say it like this. The doctrine of Christ is the gospel, the good news, and the gospel, the good news, is the doctrine of Christ because Christ is the sum and the substance of it all. There is no gospel apart from Christ. Christ is the good news. So if we think about Israel and her history, we could go all the way back to the creation of man, but let's just go back to Moses bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and delivering them, and Moses receiving from God on the mountain the law of God, and Moses recording everything for the people of God, and God gives his people, Israel, this law and this system of worship that involved the sacrifice of animals because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And we see this when we go all the way back to the garden. If you read the scripture carefully, remember when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They took fig leaves, the Bible says, and they made clothing and covered their nakedness with the fig leaves that they had picked and sewn together. And God comes, and God calls them out, and ultimately God says, you're... Your covering made by your own hands 
from your own will is not sufficient. And the Bible says God took tunics of skin and he clothed them. Well, where did that skin come from? Well, it came from an animal. And guess what? That animal had to give up in order for its skin to clothe mankind. Well, it had to give up its life. So God took the life of an animal. God shed blood and he covered man's sinfulness. And it is the grace of God that covered man's sin from that moment in the garden when man fell. It was God's grace that covered man's sin through all of those centuries, all the way up until the coming of Jesus. And what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I want you to understand that Jesus did not just cover our sin momentarily, temporarily, but the blood of Jesus has taken away our sin. And these believers that this letter is addressed to are wanting to go back to a system, back to a temple, and offer animals that at best could only temporarily atone for their sin. But now that Christ has come, that will not even cover their sin, will not atone for their sin. Because all of those animals that were ever sacrificed were pointing us to the ultimate sacrifice, which is Jesus. So that now Christ has come, and now that Christ has come, we are to look to Christ and grow beyond those elementary principles. This is what Paul tells us the law was given for. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The elementary principles referred here are those ceremonies of the law which were fundamental elements of the Jewish religion and the system of worship. And all that was given to Israel through the law and its system of worship were types and shadows that pointed to Christ, the Christ who was to come. And Christ is that substance of all that the law foreshadowed. And this is what Paul means when he says the law was my tutor or the law was my schoolmaster that brought me to Christ. The law cannot make us righteous because we are flawed. The law is not flawed. We are the ones that are flawed. But the law brings us to the one who is not flawed, the one who is able to make us righteous, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fundamental elements of the law and the system of worship that were given to Israel are the elementary or the beginning principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now that Christ, the substance, has come, there is no longer a need to look to the law with its types and its shadows that could only point to an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Now that Christ has come, we build upon those elementary principles. For those addressed in this letter, they were to know that all the law spoke of and pointed to was fulfilled in Christ. No longer are God's people looking to the shadows of the law with its ceremonies and its sacrifices. Now that Christ has come, 
we are to look to Christ and we are to grow beyond those elementary principles that are foundational to our faith in him. Thus the writer says, leaving the discussion, I want you to notice what he says, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary or beginning principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. He doesn't say we're leaving the foundation. He says we're leaving the discussion about the foundation. We have a really good object lesson sitting right here to the south of our building. Got a big hole in the ground. You know why that hole is being dug there? Because they're going to put a foundation there. They're going to dig that hole out. They're going to bring in that what they call select fill that doesn't expand and contract with moisture, when they get that thing filled up, they're going to put a foundation on it. And when that foundation is set, guess what we're going to do? We're going to stand around for the next however many years till Jesus come, and we're going to discuss the foundation. No, that's not what we're going to do. Once the foundation is laid we get to the business of building the building. But you don't build the building before you lay the foundation. Well, this is the spiritual principle. This is the the principle that's being presented here. This is what the writer of Hebrews is telling these Hebrew believers. We're not going to leave the foundation. We're going to leave the discussion about the foundation, and we're going to go on to building upon that foundation. So once the foundation is laid right and true, there's no need to lay again a foundation. We leave the discussion, but we never leave the foundation. The foundation is laid so that it can be built upon. And so the foundation is a part of the growth of the entire building. Whatever we build on that spot where that foundation is, that foundation is part of the building, and the building can't exist without the foundation. So we're never leaving the foundation. We're just going on to do what the foundation is laid for. The foundational elements of the law and its ceremonies taught the Jews the truths of the gospel concerning Christ. These foundational elements revealed through the law are the elementary or the beginning principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now that Christ has come, we are to go on to perfection, or that word means to maturity, not laying again the foundation. So what I'm going to do today is to go through these points. So let's look at these first three verses again. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, not laying again the foundation of faith toward God, not laying again the foundation of the doctrine of baptism, not laying again the foundation of laying on of hands, not laying again the foundation of the resurrection of the dead, and not laying again the foundation of eternal judgment. This we will do, the writer says, if God permits. So I want to take these six foundational principles and I want to talk about them 
in the context that they're presented here. Now, the danger is, as Western Christians who don't know our Jewish roots, the Jewish roots of our faith, we can just simply read those things and we can hear, read the words, don't lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works or faith toward God or the doctrine of baptism or laying on of hands or the resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment, and we can totally misunderstand what is being communicated here. But we don't want to do that. We want to rightly divide the word, and we want to understand what the point of this is. Because if we understand what the point of this is, we're going to have a better foundational understanding of the gospel of Christ. Because these things are the elementary or the beginning principles of the doctrine of Christ. And they were found where? They were found in the law. They were found in all the law and the ceremonies that God commanded the children of Israel to keep and perform for all of those centuries until Christ came. It's why there was a tabernacle. It's why there was the first temple. It was destroyed. And God then sent Ezra and Nehemiah back through divine intervention, through a pagan Persian king, sent them back to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt a second temple. And that second temple remained until Jesus came. And that second temple is the temple Jesus walked into, taught in, preached in. It's the temple he was dedicated in as a baby. And you know why he was dedicated? Because he was the firstborn male that opened the womb. Because it's what the law demanded. It was that second temple that God destroyed in 70 AD because God had brought and already raised up his final temple, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus says, tear this temple down and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they thought Jesus was crazy, but yet John writes, they did not understand what Jesus was speaking of. Because Jesus spoke of his body. And now what does the Bible say? It says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a building being built up, a holy habitation. You are, we talked about this last week, a royal priesthood offering up sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That's who you are as the church. That's who you are as a new creation in Christ Jesus, the one new man that he has created from the two. So let's talk about this. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. Remember, the law brought us to Christ. Christ is the rock. He is the foundation of all. All that the law taught us about these foundational truths were to be ultimately revealed and made known, and point us to Jesus Christ. They were to bring us to Christ, and they are to focus our gaze upon Christ, upon the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. The law was not just about principle. The law is about a person, a person of the Lord Jesus Christ that God has revealed in his grace. So this is the foundation of all. So let us 
go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works is here referring to the repentance which arose from and was signified by the sacrifice of slain animals. Remember, this letter is written to these Hebrews and their temptation and their sin is to go back to Jerusalem and offer the blood of animals, thereby counting the blood of Christ as common and worthy to be trampled upon. And the blood of Christ is anything but common. So the the foundation of repentance from dead works came out of this system of sacrifice. By the sacrificing of animals, the Jews were taught the doctrine of repentance and also the doctrine of remission of sin. In and over the animal, they would confess their sin. Every animal that was slain for the sacrifice of sin carried with it a conviction of sin and an acknowledgement of guilt. It was to be understood by the one for whom the animal was slain that the one deserving a death was not the animal, but it was the one offering the animal. So if I commit sin, and now the law requires that I take my, sa- my animal to be sacrificed, that I take the sacrifice to the temple and the blood of that animal to atone for my sin, I must understand that it's not the animal that's, that's deserving of death, it's me that's deserving of death. It's just that God in his grace allows me to bring an animal and the blood of that animal covers my sin when in reality I'm the one deserving of death. In and over they would confess their sin. And that sin was was confessed over that animal and that animal was slain and the one offering that animal understood that animal died in my place. So the Jews say, when a man sacrifices a beast, he thinks in his own heart, I am rather a beast than this, than this animal. For I am am he that hath sinned, and for the sin which I have committed, I bring this, this animal. And it is more fitting that the man should be sacrificed rather than the beast. And so it appears that by the means of his offering the animal, the man repents. The very act of offering the animal for sacrifice, for sin, is an act of repentance. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of faith. It's an act of repentance. But now, Christ has come. This is what the Jews did for centuries leading up to the incarnation of Christ. But now, Christ has come, and under the gospel dispensation, we who believe do not learn the doctrine of repentance from slain animals, nor do we any longer signify it in this way. We don't offer animals for sin. We don't show that we are repentant before God by offering our sacrifice, our animal to God. Now, repentance and remission of sins are preached in the name of Christ. And in this way, we must not lay again the foundation, but we look only to Christ for the repentance and the remission of sin. 
We're not looking to the blood of an animal any longer. We're not saying, see God, I've brought my my animal for sacrifice because of my sin. You see my repentant heart. We don't do that any longer. Because that blood of that animal has no meaning any longer because it only pointed me to Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, I'm not looking to the blood of animals. I'm looking to Jesus. And my repentance is in Jesus. My faith is in Jesus. And we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ slain for the sins of God's people. And we point God's people not to the blood of bulls and goats, but we point God's people to the blood of God's Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the writer of Hebrews meant when he says we're not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead work. If you go back and you offer that animal in the temple, you have just undone everything that was done in your mind. You don't really undo it. You can never undo what God has done. But there was nevertheless a real warning that if we really go back and we really begin to count on the blood of animals for the repentance of our sin. We are in a very, very dangerous place. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of faith toward God. In John 14, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples just before his arrest and crucifixion, the night that they ate the Passover together, before he went and and before he was taken, Jesus says this to his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus, the Son of God, says to his disciples, You believe in God, you believe also in me. Believe in me as the Son of God and the Messiah. Believe in me as the mediator between God and man. Now they were not only to have faith towards God, as the God of Israel, as the God who gave Moses and the children of Israel the law, but now they were to have faith not only in God, but also in Jesus Christ. They were to have faith towards God as the God of Israel and to teach and receive that doctrine, but also to have faith in Christ as the Savior of lost sinners as the only Savior that can save us. And that salvation in Christ is without the intermediate of animals. In other words, we don't have to bring an animal and have faith in Christ in order for the blood of Christ to cleanse me, in order for the sacrifice and the salvation of Christ to save me. I leave the animal because the animal only pointed me to Jesus. Now I just come to Jesus, and my plea is in the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. He is my intermediate. He is my mediator. Paul writes this in his letter to Timothy, there is only one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus. So faith in God is no longer based on the use of animals and sacrifice. Jesus Christ 
The Lamb of God is now the only sacrifice and the only mediator sufficient between God and man. Now that Christ has come, there is no faith toward God if our faith is not in Jesus Christ and the only begotten Son slain for our sin. Not laying again the foundation of the doctrine of baptism. This is referring to the various baptisms and washings and purifications that the Jews of the Jews that came through the law. These various washings were referred to in the chapter 9 of this letter as it speaks to the insufficient nature of these things to make us perfect or to make us complete. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. And the context there is that all of these things cannot make us complete. They were part of the law. They were part of what God commanded, but they were only there to ultimately bring us to Christ. Those various washings and purifications, if you think about it, though, were coupled with the sacrifice of slain animals so that along with the washing of water, there was the necessity of the shedding of blood to purify and to cleanse us. This ever always spoke of the cleansing power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even now, in Christian baptism, our baptism signifies that we are crucified with Christ. Christian baptism is with water, but it speaks of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ to raise us up from sin and death and to seat us with him in his resurrected life. Make us righteous. In fact, the righteousness of God in Christ. Not laying again the foundation of laying on of hands. Now as charismatics, you know that was my background. Pentecostal charismatics, we were all about laying on hands. That's not what this is talking about here. This is not talking about a good charismatic Pentecostal service where you're laying hands on everybody and they're falling out all over the floor. That's not what this is about. In the sacrifice of an animal for sin, the priest would lay his hands upon the head of that animal to signify the transfer of sin to that animal from the one offering the animal, so that when the animal was offered, the sin was upon the animal when it was sacrificed. Through the centuries of countless sacrifices offered in tabernacle and temple, the transference of sin spoke of the sin that would ultimately be laid upon Jesus. So you get this? Every goat, every lamb, every bull, every turtle dove, every animal that was ever offered. And the priest laid his hands on that animal to signify the transference of sin to that animal. That always spoke of and pointed to Christ, God's sinless lamb that would come one day and shed his blood to once and for all take away the sin of God's people. No longer is our sin covered by transferring it to an animal that is sacrificed on our behalf. And that transference occurred through the laying on of hands. We're going to see this later when we get to the to chapter 9 here in the book of Hebrews, the graphic picture of 
the high priest on the day of atonement. And this whole, all of this ceremony and all this symbolism is in full display. And it all speaks of and it all points us to Christ. Our sin has been taken fully by Jesus, the Lamb of God, that was slain and sacrificed to take away our sin. Now that Christ has come, our sin is not covered temporarily until the next sacrifice. Now in Christ, our sin is completely taken away. The scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, you realize you can travel east and never reach a point that you're traveling west. Once you start out east, you'll always be going east. Not so if you travel north to south. If you travel north far enough, you're going to hit the North Pole. And then, guess what? You're going to be traveling south. What does this signify for us? It signifies that when God takes our sin away, He takes it away and it is never to meet us again. It is as far as the east is from the west. God laid our sin upon Christ and in doing so, He has completely removed it from His sight. Now, the Father sees only the Son that was slain for sinner's sake. All the hands laid on all the animals ever sacrificed by earthly priests in an earthly tabernacle or temple spoke of the once-for-all transfer of sin and sacrifice that was accomplished in Jesus Christ. There is no need for us to look beyond Jesus. There is no need for us to lay again the foundation of this principle, this elementary principle of the laying on of hands. For by the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus... Our sins are taken away and we are declared forgiven. Not laying again the foundation of resurrection from the dead. These are doctrines taught under the Old Testament and were generally believed by the Jews. In Jesus' day, there were two main sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were Sadducees because they didn't believe in a resurrection. But most Jews believe in a resurrection. And the Bible teaches a resurrection. With the revelation of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, these doctrines that were shrouded in mystery began to be brought to full light. The Spirit in us, just like I read in the children's story, now begins to illuminate, begins to open the eyes of our understanding. And we now understand this doctrine, this foundational doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. The Apostle Paul addresses the ignorance associated with death In his letters, there's no need to be ignorant about death or about the resurrection from the dead. There is no need for speculation, for Christ set the example as the first fruits of resurrection. He was actually raised up on the feast of first fruits because he was the first sheep weighed before the Lord. He was the first resurrected, and we are the ones that are going to follow, just like it was with the harvest. He was the first fruits, and now all the rest will follow. He set the example for us. His example one day with the redemption of our own bodies in the resurrection, as Paul writes. We're going to follow that example. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8.23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. 
this is why the Bible speaks of salvation in three, in three tenses. Past tense, complete. Present tense, ongoing. Future tense, yet to be accomplished. Spiritually, I am saved. Finished. Done deal. Currently, my soul, my mind, my will, and emotions are being renewed to the truth. I have the mind of Christ, but I also have my old stinking mind. And my old stinking mind needs to be renewed to the mind of Christ and the truth of Christ. And this is the part of me, my soul, my mind, that is being renewed, is being saved. And there's another part of me called my body that is dying, even though I can still run around and jump around and and I can still do my push-ups. I read an article, you can do 40 push-ups, men. It's the best indicator of whether you will die of heart disease in the next 10 years. You can do 40 or more push-ups, there's a good chance you won't have to worry about heart disease. So get busy, start doing your push-ups, okay? Well, that was free. That one didn't cost you anything, okay? Really has nothing to do with what we're talking about here today. But the point is this, our bodies are running down, they're dying. But here's the hope. Romans 8, 23, one day God is going to give us a new body. Now, how do we know that? Well, the Bible says, but also Jesus was resurrected with a glorified body. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 50, chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. These truths now clearly revealed to us in Christ were once veiled in mystery. There is no longer any need for mystery. Christ is risen and so shall we be raised bodily in Christ one day at the sounding of the last trumpet at his final return to this earth. When that trumpet sounds, that means Christ is coming back. And if you're still alive when that happens, you're going to be changed. Your body will be changed. All those that have fallen asleep in Christ, they'll be raised up out of the ground from the grave, wherever they are, to meet the Lord in the air. And the Bible says, and we shall all be with him always, forever. Not laying again the foundation of the resurrection of the dead not laying again the foundation of eternal judgment. There is an eternal judgment. There is a judgment. The Scripture teaches it, and the Jews knew this. For those who believed God, there was fear associated with His judgment. And there should be. Now in Christ, even though we will be judged, there is no reason, though, for us to be fearful if we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, he writes. But listen to the words of John in 1 John chapter 4, 16-19. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Did you catch that? In the day of judgment, we are to have boldness because as Christ is, so are we in this world. Who made that possible? Christ is. That's not your doing. That's God's doing. That's not your hard work. That's God's grace. When we appear before the Lord, we're, we're not going to pat ourselves on the back and say, good job, you made it. We're going to fall down in humility before him. And if we don't fully understand it now, we will absolutely fully understand it then that the only reason we are saved, the only reason that we will spend eternity in the presence of the Lord is by the grace of God and nothing else. Nothing else. There's not one thing you or I can add to the work of Christ to save us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. No longer are we trusting in the temporary atonement the blood of an animal provides. We are trusting now in the eternal atonement that only the blood of Jesus provides. God has judged us in our sin and we are pronounced guilty. The good news is that Jesus has transferred to himself our sin and has taken upon himself the wrath of God's judgment that was reserved for us. And we can be assured of this if we are trusting in Christ and trusting in him alone. There is no fear there is no reason for you to fear. Christ has made you safe and secure. There is absolutely a reason for us to be humble and thankful for what he has done. Christ was judged for our sins so that we could have boldness in the day of judgment. Because of Christ, because as Christ is, so are we in this world. This is how the Father now sees us in Jesus Christ. He sees us through the righteous blood of his son there is no reason to lay again the foundation of eternal judgment for jesus has once for all been judged for our stead and all who trust in christ may boldly stand in him in the day of judgment are you trusting in christ if you are you can stand boldly in the day of judgment and so this is what the writer of hebrews says he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms or the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead or of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. There was no presumption here by the author. This is a reminder to all that God is the author and the finisher of our faith. There is no reason for us to be presumptuous, though there is every reason for us to be confident. There is a difference between presumption and confidence. Presumption is a sin. Confidence is a grace that God gives to us. The author pins those very words later in this chapter, that Jesus, that God is the author, the finisher of our faith. 
what was presumptuous was the desire of these Hebrews to want to go back to Jerusalem to offer the blood of slain animals as sacrifice for their sin. It was presumptuous to continue to discuss these elementary principles and to debate the things that Jesus had laid to rest by his incarnation and his death, resurrection, and ascension. There is no question left to debate except the question of faith in obedience to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That was the question then, and that is the question that remains today. It is the question of our faith and our obedience to the Lord Jesus. Are we trusting in Him, or are we trying to lay again a foundation that has already been laid? If you think there's anything you can do to atone for your sin, to help God forgive you, you're laying again a foundation that's already been laid. Stop that. And just thank God for what He has given you in giving Him, in giving you His Son. Are we willing to fall broken upon the fat foundation who is our rock and live? You can fall upon the rock and be broken and live, or the rock can fall upon you in judgment and crush you to death. So what are we willing to do? Are we willing to fall upon the rock? Or are we going to wait until the rock falls upon us? This is an important question in the day and the time we live in. We are living in a nation that it is just by the grace of God that we still have the measure of peace and prosperity that we have here. And if God's people do not, I want to say rise up, but the reality is if God's people don't fall down broken upon the rock, there will be no healing for our land. And that doesn't begin at a national level. That begins at a heart level. That means it begins with each one of us. It begins with God's people, with God's church. That's who each of us are. So that's the question. Will you fall broken upon the rock or will the rock fall upon you? Trust in Jesus. Fall upon the rock and live. That's the answer. That's the answer. Trust in Jesus. Fall upon that rock and live. That's the answer the world needs. That's the answer the church needs. That's the answer we need to be willing to provide those who are struggling. And that begins not just with our words, but that begins with our life. So I want to invite you to come to the Lord's table. And we come to this table, we take that bread and we take that cup and we affirm the covenant. We are the covenant people of God. When the writer of Hebrews talks about going on to perfection, he's not talking about living in sinless perfection. He's talking about understanding that we are complete in him because of what Jesus Christ has done. And whatever shortcoming I have, God has connected me to you. And he's connected you to me 
so that we can supply life to one another. And that life flows from our head, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are not all independent, self-sustaining members of the body of Christ. We are all individual members that are linked and joined together, and we depend upon one another for life, just like every part of your body depends on the other part for life. When we come to this table, this is what we're declaring. Our worship for a covenant God as his covenant people. And we discern the body not by looking at the bread. We discern the body by looking at the body. That's all of us. So as we come to this table, I want to encourage you, look around, discern the body, and be thankful. Be thankful for the body that God has placed you in. So now you know why you didn't all receive a coloring packet after the story. Because you're not all children. And yet we look at our children, and there is an expectation that our children will grow to maturity. And we look at those who are full-grown, and there is an expectation that they are to live as full-grown. The call for us is to go on to perfection. Perfection can seem intimidating for, for who's perfect, right? Well, only one was perfect, and they crucified him. But this call to perfection is not a call to live without falling or live without failure. This call to go on to perfection is simply a call to grow up. It is a call to maturity. Maturity is what we expect from our children. It is what God expects from his children. Maturity does not mean sinless perfection. Maturity means learning and growing from our sin and from our imperfection. Maturity is doing the hard things. It's pressing through the unpleasantness of things and learning to look for the unexpected blessing and the fruit that only God can bring through the struggles of life. Maturity is learning to love and value things we once ignored or neglected or did not know. Maturity is putting away the things we become accustomed to when growth calls for new or maybe for old things church is discovering a lot of old things throughout at one time. Maturity is learning to eat solid food even when it is a challenge to our taste and our ability. Maturity is trusting God to know how to help us learn to love new and unfamiliar things that grow us. This is why we are called, each one of us, to purpose, to grow up in all things in Christ, individually and personally, as the church. Amen.